these two brothers were crooked, to say that they were evil, that would be a, that would be a grave understatement, okay? Their whole lives, these guys spent basically terrorizing people around them. They would steal, they would, they would rob innocent people, they would, they would take cars and jewelry and medicine from people in the town, and then they would turn around and sell it. These guys were the worst of the worst. And then rumors ended up getting around that, that somebody was going to try to turn them in. And these guys actually, it's, it's, it's rumored that they, they silenced that person for good. So they got so good, these two brothers, at cheating and stealing that they actually accumulated significant wealth. These guys were rich, and they were rich just from cheating people. Um, just at the last moment when the town was about to come together in some kind of revolt, the town was going to chase them down for a flogging. These, these guys, one of them was caught in the line of fire, and he died. He, they were about to get this big score, and then all of a sudden on their way out, one of the brothers was killed. So the surviving brother went to the pastor in town, and he said, Look, look, pastor, I need you to do my brother's funeral. I need you to do this. Um, I'm going to pay you handsomely, and I need you to come do this funeral. And here's the thing. You have to say that my brother was a saint. You have to say that. And the pastor was like, I know these guys. I know these boys since they were young. They are far from that. I am not going to say that. All these people in this town know that that's not true. I'm not doing it. Sorry, I'm not doing it. The, the surviving brother said, no, I don't think you understand, preacher man. <laughs> you will do this. Uh, I'm going to pay you, and you will say that my brother is a saint. And the pastor started thinking a little bit, well, you know, giving has been a little lighter recently. The church needs a new roof. <laughs> Maybe I will actually do this. So the pastor said, all right, as you wish, I'll do the funeral. Well, that day came for the funeral. That day showed up, and the pastor came, and, and he was right. All these people gathered around, everybody from the town that had been cheated, that had been stolen from, they showed up in droves. And they weren't there to send this guy off uh, peacefully. They, they wanted to hear justice. They wanted to hear the pastor rain down some truth about what terrible life uh, this brother in particular lived. They had no idea about the deal that this pastor made. Okay, so here's the scene. The pastor's here, the, the surviving brother, everybody out in the, in the crowd. And the pastor begins and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, the man in this coffin, he was the most crooked, he was the most evil, he was the most vile, contemptible, detestable individual that you could ever, ever imagine. He was a wretched opportunist, opportunist. he was a manipulator, he was a deceiver, he disobeyed every law imaginable. He destroyed lives of tons of people, careers, families, a lot of people that are sitting right here. This guy was probably a Steelers fan. The man in this coffin did every dirty, spineless, unconscionable thing imaginable, said the pastor. But compared to his brother here, he was a saint. Welcome to Echo Church. My name's David. I'm also a new dad, so it's my responsibility to tell corny jokes. Also, we're in the middle of a series called The Word. Today's going to be a little bit more of a somber topic, so we have to start, like, with a joke. Um... We're kicking off this series, this calendar year, basically looking at a few different words. Where do we think God's taking us? Where do we think he's calling us? What are some words that are really important to God? And then how can we apply those to our everyday life? The first week, the word was new. We talked about how God is the author of new. He literally created things out of nothing, ex nihilo. God's the only one that can make us new. 
Last week, Steve presented our second word. Our second word was striper. No, it wasn't striper. Our word was countercultural last week. Like that old Christian band, um, sometimes God calls us to swim upstream and be a little bit different. We're to immerse ourselves in this tension of truth and grace, to be in the world but not from it. Countercultural. Sometimes Christians, people who follow Jesus, are called to look a little bit different in 2017. This week, though, we have a whole new word to run after. Our whole new word, and this week, the word is obedience. The second responsibility you have as a dad is to wear clothes that embarrass your family. So this is my shirt today. And you can see, no one's ever accused Echo of spending money loosely, so... uh, Our, our first word of the week is on the back of the shirt. So obedience is our word today. And, and the text we're going to look at, this is one of the most heart-pounding, gut-wrenching stories that we see in the Bible. It's the most momentous event in, the, in our patriarch Abraham's life that we see in the Old Testament. But the Bible tells us exactly through this what obedience looks like. Before we get in, let's, let's say a prayer. Lord, we thank you for bringing us... Um, to gather here here this morning. Um, help us to put the pause button on everything else that's going on in our life right now and hear a word from you. Help me stay out of the way, Lord, and, and for you to speak. And call us to take further ground as a church today. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we have a reader helping us out today. Jessica, can you start us off? We're actually in Genesis chapter 22. This is page 14 in your blue Bible. And we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. All right, I'll finish it off. Um, Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. If this passage is a little jarring to you, if this is unsettling, if your stomach turns a little bit, good, good. It does for me too. I'm a little uneasy reading this. Because we see right here that we can't make any excuses. God is asking Abraham, sacrifice your son. It's very plainly there. Your son that you love deeply, Abraham, I need you to sacrifice him. A lot of people, though, look at this story and become angry with God. Or start to really question what you know about God and your entire worldview. And to that, I would just caution you a few things before you go that route. First and foremost, as a general principle, anytime we read something in Scripture that that shakes our worldview or makes us question who we believe God is, this should be a red flag to take a moment and go a little bit deeper. Ask yourself a, a few questions. Am I trying to mold God neatly into this box that's my worldview so he looks how I want him to look? Or am I humbly approaching it to allow God to mold me? That's the question we should ask. How tragic would it be if we read the Bible and then, number one, we completely understood everything. And number two, everything we read completely gelled with what we believe. That, that's a disaster. No one wants that. You know, it'd be like if you're pursuing God and you finally come upon God and you, you just to say, wow, he looks a lot like me. That's a nightmare. No one wants that. I can tell you two things about reading scripture in general that definitely apply here and then everywhere else when you read scripture. This won't be the last time you'll hear this. 
But number one, it's never allow one passage or one verse or something like that to determine your entire view of Scripture or the, or the, the meta-narrative of Christianity. That's not how it works. Everything comes in context. You can't read the Bible like a cookbook. Just pick out what you want and then use it. It doesn't work like that. Everything falls under a central theme that runs through the Bible. You can see the gospel in every book. Number two is this. We have to approach Scripture humbly. This is a, this is a really academic and thinking church, but we always have to approach the Scripture with humility to say, allow God to speak to us in a new way. Those are important. So for this story that turns our stomachs and has this unsettling feeling, we have to look no further than the first verse. And see, as the reader, we know right from the start that this is a test. This is a test. Abraham doesn't know that, but the reader does. God never intended to kill Isaac. We can see that in the beginning, and this is so, so important. Abraham didn't know this as the reader we did. God tested Abraham, and Abraham and God had a covenant through his son, through Abraham's only son, God would begin the line of a great nation. If you check the track record, God had always been faithful to Abraham. In fact, just a few chapters earlier, chapter 12, God called Abraham to leave his family, his comfort zone, every, the land that he knew and loved, and to go somewhere that he would reveal later. Check this out. The language in this actually looks a lot similar to the first thing we just read here in 12.1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And Abraham did just that. He didn't know exactly what would happen, but through a lot of twists and turns, he took his wife, Sarah, and they ended up in Canaan, the land God prepared for him. In their extremely old age, I think Sarah was 90, they had a son. And it was there that God rewarded his faithfulness and began a covenant with Abraham. He promised him that through your line will be a great nation, and through your descendants, many other nations will be blessed. So Abraham had heard something like this before. Go to the land I'll show you. Now the first time required a sacrifice. He had to leave everything he knew, everything he was comfortable with to go somewhere he didn't know where he was going. But this sacrifice we're looking at now in Genesis 22 is completely different. This is a whole different level. The first time you see the word love in the Bible actually comes here when God says to Abraham about his son, Isaac, whom you love. That's the first time it shows up. And God's asking him to kill Isaac with his own hands. As unspeakable and as barbaric as this sounds, child sacrifice, this was kind of a commonplace thing in the ancient Near East and some parts of it, especially Canaan where they were. Um, there was a cult deity, Moloch. I think we'll see a rendering up here. He was a huge hollow idol made of brass with outstretched hands. And some Canaanites would, uh, would place their children there. The flames would roar up. And it was said that practice that you would allow this kid to pass through the fire to Molech as a sacrifice. So yes, child sacrifice, one of the most depraved, evil things you could possibly imagine. But I think what we'll see here, that God, in testing Abraham through this exact way, was expressing something about his own character that was far, far different from anything you would see in these man-made idols. The Bible is often a beautiful example of the contrast effect. And what that means is when you have two dissimilar things right next to each other, we, we actually get a clearer picture of both when they're right next to each other. And this story is an example. So what's Abraham's response to this ask from God? Let's check it out. Genesis 22, this is verse 3 and 5. Okay, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. 
he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Anyone else amazed at Abraham's reaction? The Bible says Abraham got up. Does that, does that mean he slept the night before? Does that mean he made his alarm? I don't think I could fall asleep. Did you notice this? It's not an immediate request. God asked Abraham to take this journey. This is not an impulse decision God's allowing Abraham to make. He's taking a long trip, about 50 miles. This is three days to Moriah. And Abraham's obedience had to stand the test of this time. So wouldn't there have to be a few opportunities for Abraham to look at his son Isaac and think, this is crazy, what am I doing? I'm going to turn around, this makes no sense, I'm not going to do this. But he didn't. Something else to make note of, and I'll leave this here. Verse 4 says, on the third day. This thing went down on the third day. Maybe we'll get back to that. At the end of of verse 5, this is really important. Look what Abraham says to his servants. He says, you wait here. Isaac and I are going to go, and then we are going to come back. We are going to come back. Abraham says, both of us are coming back. Did he hear what God asked him to do? When I first read this, I I always thought that Abraham was lying. (laughs) He's got to be lying. He's just trying to cover it up so Isaac can't see what's going on, so the servants don't see what's going on. But look a little closer. Abraham wasn't lying at all. It turns out he actually believed that. Abraham didn't know that God was going to prevent him from going through with it. That's not it. Because it wouldn't have been a test. If something's labeled a test, the test taker can't know beforehand what the outcome's going to be. That's not a real test. Everyone's done a a trust fall before. You get your face blindfolded, you you cross your hands, and you sort of slip back where people are waiting to catch you. You've done that before. Has anyone in the history of the world not Maybe they have. Maybe there's a YouTube video or something out there. But it's almost, if you're the person who's waiting to catch someone, it's almost an involuntary action. You're going to catch them. That's not a real test. You know, do you really think that your, your co-workers at your off-site event or your camp counselors or whoever are going to let you fall? They're not. They're not going to let you fall. Okay, spoiler alert. That's not a real test. In the same way, if Abraham knew what we, the readers, know, that God's not actually going to let me do this, it's not, it's not a test at all. So what made Abraham say that they both come back if he didn't know it was just a test? How can he so confidently say that to his servants? Because I don't think he was lying. Well, look, sometimes scripture speaks much, much later on something to give us a clearer picture. The author of Hebrews has something to say about this exact event. He says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. See, Abraham didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew a couple things about God. Abraham didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew a couple things about God. Number one, Abraham knew God is faithful. God's faithful. He's already made a covenant with him that this child, Isaac, was going to be the start of a line that would be a nation. God doesn't go back on his promises. Abraham knows that. Second thing. Abraham knows that God is powerful. There's nothing out of God's reach. He's demonstrated that in Abraham's life. We say God is omnipotent. He can do anything. Nothing is impossible with God. The writer of Hebrews is actually positing that, hey, 
Abraham wouldn't even put a death to life resurrection off the table for God. Okay, he didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew that God was faithful and he knew that God was powerful. For you and me, we don't always have to know what God's going to do in our situation. We always want to know. I always want to know what's around the corner. When he calls us to obedience, it requires us to reject our own will and to pursue his instead. And we won't know what it'll look like, but we can take these two things to the bank every time. God is faithful and God is powerful. He doesn't break promises. He never will. And nothing is out of reach for him. It takes obedience. Do you ever do this confession right here? I, I sometimes dream up this romantic situation where I'm going to be in this dramatic gun to your head God or the other way. And I'm going to have to choose this kind of Peter scenario where will I deny him or go the other way, this dichotomy. I don't know why my mind goes here, but I sometimes think of that. I I hope I'm not the only one. Um, And my mind goes back to April 20th, 1999, Columbine High School, the, the first school shooting that really put school shootings in the forefront of our culture, unfortunately. And there was this story that came out in the very beginning that there was actually a female student who was asked by one of the shooters, do you believe in God? She said, yes. And then he fatally shot her. And we found out later that that actually wasn't true. The eyewitnesses told, well, something different happened. Actually, one of the, one of the girls in the library actually was shot. And she was laying on the ground and bleeding. And the shooter came by and uh, he heard her screaming, God, save me. God, please don't let me die. She was screaming in agony. And he said, you actually believe in God? And she said, yes. Part of me thinks that that is even more courageous, and these are both amazing stories, one of them true, than anything you could hear of. But you know what? Those events, that's, that's not actually the kind of obedience that's in our day-to-day life. The thing that, that I've pondered is, would I have the courage to do that? I don't know. But what's more important is, whose will is going to guide my decisions every single day? Is it going to be me, or am I going to lower myself to allow God's will to be done? C.S. Lewis looks at obedience in a different way. I love this quote. I want to share it with you. About obedience, C.S. Lewis says this. To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There'd be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you wouldn't take his advice. Thus, if you really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you're trying to obey him. But trying in a new way, a less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because... He has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. If we say we follow Jesus, that means we trust him. And if we trust him, our behavior should reflect that trust. It seems like a necessary part of following someone, right? Submitting to his or her authority. I trust you, Pilate, but... I'm not getting on that plane. I trust you, Doc, but I'm not, I'm not taking that medicine. Yeah, this chair is really sturdy, but you sit in it. I'm fine. See, it's that age-old conversation of faith and works. Not works so that we can get to heaven, but faith that can be seen and demonstrated and evidenced by our day-to-day obedience. At any rate, Abraham was day-to-day obedient, but this situation we're studying today, this was one of those gun-to-your-head, super-dramatic situations. God's will or mine. Let's continue the story a little bit. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac. 
And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Let me ask you this. Um, I was talking with Larry, one of our elders, about this before this morning. But what does Isaac look like in your mind? How do you picture Isaac right here? Specifically, how old do you think he is? Because when I heard this story growing up, Isaac was five years old in my head. Isaac was a helpless little innocent kindergartner. And Abraham was basically Liam Neeson with a particular set of skills. And that's not actually how the scene was at all. It was nothing like that. We got that wrong. Isaac wasn't a kindergartner. He was at the very minimum, like mid-teens, probably closer to mid-20s, almost 30. And this passage said that he carried wood on his back, enough to burn up a body up a mountain. That's a grown man's job. No, no kindergartner is going to be able to do this. Um, it turns out that Abraham was a, a lot less like Liam Neeson and a, more, a lot more like Kirk Douglas. He was 120 years old. You think, uh, you think Isaac could have got away if he wanted to? You think Isaac could have said, Dad, you're nuts. Punched his dad in the face and run away. Something? I don't know. Yes. He could have easily overpowered his dad. And that's something that's lost in this story is Isaac's obedience. Another example of obedience to the father, even if it means death. Do you see the gospel through, through this? All right, we're going to finish this story all together. This is, uh, this is six verses, so try to follow closely here. We're going to go 9 to 14. It says, When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up there in the thicket and he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Are you imagining this scene? Maybe Isaac, maybe like close to my age, a little younger, his dad, 120 years old, wielding a knife above his body. And all of a sudden the angel says of the Lord says, stop, don't harm him. Stop. I, I can see the depth of your faith now. See, God was not going to let Abraham kill Isaac. That's false God stuff. That's, that's the stuff of Molech. That's not how Yahweh operates. God does not approve of his people performing child sacrifice. Instead, God says this to his children. The only one who will offer up his only son is me. One of the countless stories in the Bible that captures this impossibly beautiful paradox of Christianity. The all-powerful God doesn't require us to earn our way to take someone's life in sacrifice. He does it all. He lowers himself to reconcile us. It has it all here, right in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Check this out. A father's willingness to sacrifice his only son, whom he loved. The son's willingness to die in obedience to the father. This happened on the third day, on a mountain bound to wood. This was, the Lord will provide was the theme. 
Because God was the only one who could. And just as Isaac came back from the dead, no, he wasn't killed, but Abraham effectively killed him in his heart. Just as Isaac came back, so does Jesus. 2,000 years after this story, God calls the son from death to life. So here's my question. Would you do it? Would you sacrifice your child if God asked? No, no, you wouldn't. No, I wouldn't either. Abraham didn't, uh, he didn't have the full revelation yet. We know who God is in Jesus. John 14, 9. When you see me, you see the Father. And there was no one more nonviolent than Christ. He would suffer extreme violence rather than partake in any of it. Jesus never prescribed violence. He always spoke against it. There's a difference when we're reading the word between what's a description and what's a prescription. Okay, when we're reading this amazing story here, this is a description of perfect submission, of unwavering obedience. God's not going to ask us to sacrifice our kids, but he will ask us to have a heart that says, everything I have is yours. Everything, including my kids, are yours. God will never ask us to sacrifice our kids, but he will ask us maybe to stop pouring all of our unfulfilled hopes and dreams into our kids. He's not going to ask us to give up our spouse, but he might ask us to give up all those grudges we're holding against their mistakes. God's not going to ask us to leave our family, but he might ask us to stop keeping record of all their misdeeds. The debt has been paid. Our children are safe, praise the Lord. Abraham's son, whom he loved, was safe. Truth be told, obedience is really difficult. It's hard to do, especially when God says, hey, go to the place I'm going to show you that you don't know about yet. But look at Abraham. Maybe he did sleep the night before his trip. I don't know. But he could look back in his life and count all the times God showed up. Can't we do the same? Can't we do the same? In psychology, uh, we have this this thing that we say all the time. It's uh, the best predictor of future performance is past performance. If you want to have an idea of what's going to happen, look at what did happen. Well, last I checked in my life, God's batting a thousand. He never misses. He never will. I said last week our word was countercultural. I don't always think it's a bad thing when the world looks at you and says what you're doing is foolish. It's not always bad. Um, about 10 years ago, maybe around there, there was a recent college graduate. He was living in San Francisco. His name was Brian. And Brian was at this yard sale. I think it was his actually. And he met a stranger there who was going to buy one of his paintings. He started talking to this guy. The guy was out of town. And kind of, maybe you've been in this situation, but unfortunately, the guy, it came out that, uh, I don't have anywhere to stay. (laughs) So Brian felt like kind of obligated. Well, you know, if you need a place to stay, you can come stay at my house. I got an air mattress. And uh, that's what happened. This, This guy came and stayed and it was a pleasant experience. And Brian started to reflect on that and say, Maybe there's an opportunity here. What if like everybody in the world could do something like this if you're staying in a different place? So what he did was went to Silicon Valley. He got in contact with 10 different um, investors and only five of them agreed to get coffee with him. And of those five, he got exactly zero offers to fund this dream. So then he went home for the holidays and he started talking to his family about a big mistake. And his family said, you're nuts. No, no one wants strangers in their houses. Fast forward, today, Airbnb is the large, it's larger than any hotel chain in the world, okay? Going against what the world thinks is not always a bad idea. And there may not be anything more countercultural today than obedience. Because when we obey, we essentially concede our power 
in our freedom to do what may seem like it'll result in the most self-gain. Truly trying to obey God will make you look weird today. (laughs) People will think you're strange. What do you mean you won't gossip about our neighbor? What do you mean you're using your PTO to go on a mission trip? How do you stay so positive when X, Y, and Z is going on in the world right now? Here's how we do it. Because we know Jesus. And if no one around you thinks that some of your decisions are a little weird, here's, the, here's what it's telling you. We don't have enough non-Christian friends. So if I were to guess what the number one reason why people don't follow Jesus is, I would, I would probably guess that it's, they don't want to submit. That submission is scary. See, Jesus' grace and his love is lost on no one. Anyone that encounters him can see that. But sometimes, like the rich young ruler, when we do meet the Lord and we see how he is, we see that he requires something of us. We want to run. And like the rich young ruler, we might walk away sad because of the cost of obedience. So here's what it comes down to. At some point in our Christian walk, God's going to ask us to give something up. Maybe he already has. Is it a a sin that we keep returning to? Is it an unhealthy relationship? Is it maybe actually something tangible that we've elevated to idol status? I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. We can't cling to anything, person, thing, anything, if we want to follow Jesus. That's the message here. In this fallen world, it seems like life is a process. And I, I say this a lot when basically things leave us. God teaches us to let go of everything because life takes everything away. We're stripped of things. Sometimes it happens really fast. Sometimes it's a a slow thing, but it's always difficult. In the end, we're going to stand naked before God. All our defenses are going to be stripped. So isn't it better to give God our best right now and not wait? Our marching orders for this week. Obedience. What's your Isaac? God wasn't really wanting Abraham to sacrifice his son. God wanted Abraham to sacrifice himself, his own will, his own desires and plans. What's my Isaac? What am I clinging to? Can we trust that God, even though we don't know what's going to happen, is going to be faithful. He's going to be, he has everything in his power to make it happen. He, that's his track record. That's what God always has been. Can we trust him? And we can pray for the obedience to do that. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Abraham's example. We thank you for a fulfilled covenant through him. God, we realize I'm not always obedient. We're not always obedient. We thank you for the grace that we have because your son was. Lord, help us move boldly forward as a church and to pursue these words together. Help us love people this week in submission to you. In Jesus' name, amen.